well, what a remarkable life and work of God. Uh, just so stirring to, to read, uh, hear about these profiles. And if you'd like to uh, do a little bit more reading, if you want to bump down the little green fader there, Bob, that'd be great. Um, there's, a, there's a short biography by a guy named T.H.L. Parker, and it's, it's titled A Portrait of Calvin. And it's about 100 pages long, and you can download it for free. Um, it's, it's available as a, as a PDF. Actually, Desiring God's website has, has hosted that. Um, so if you just do a quick Google search for A Portrait of Calvin, THL Parker, and that you'll be able to download a PDF of that. And it, it's really amazing how much is available uh, to us now. You can get any of Calvin's commentaries uh, for free online. Uh, he wrote a commentary on most of the books of the Bible. Um, you can access his institutes as well. And I think you'll find it, it, they're surprisingly uh, readable and devotional and, and just a fresh encouragement uh, for your faith and your walk with, with the Lord. Um, just an illustration of, of Calvin's uh, preaching uh, practice and priorities. You know, this was a, a time in the life of the church where God's word is being recovered and, and for many people heard for the first time. It's being proclaimed in an understandable way for the first time. And so preaching is restored to the church. And, and you follow the, the narrative there where there's a, there's a season where, where Calvin is exiled from Geneva and then eventually he's asked to return in 1541. Uh, well, he steps back in that Sunday and he preaches the very next verse that he had left off years later when he was in Geneva. He had been doing a, a series on the, on the Psalms. If you think that our series lasts for a long time, you should pay attention to some of these guys. Um, and he just goes right back to, to where they had left off because he just wanted to emphasize this is what this is all about and this is uh, what we are building here. All right, uh, well, are there any questions either about what we've heard today or anything that's come up for you in interacting with the Reformation and the truths of the Reformation and maybe um, what does that mean for interacting in our own lives today or with uh, Roman Catholic friends and family or anything like that? Virtus. So there's, you know, there's a history behind that. The, the, the word deuterocanonical or second canon is a word that the Roman Catholic Church has used historically for those books. But by that, they don't mean that they're less inspired than the rest of the book. So they, they, they view them as inspired and, and having canonical status. Um, 
you know, there, there, just to explain a little bit of, of where this could come from, uh, the early stages of the church, these works were viewed as helpful, as potentially edifying, as providing um, history to what's, what's God's people up to during these, these centuries of the intertestamental period. And, and you know, you, you have around the, the fourth century, you have the invention of the codex. And so that's the first time you actually have a book. You know, before then you have scrolls and you have in, individual works. And, and so you didn't have, uh, until then, you, didn't, you never had a Bible that was bound together in this format. And that doesn't mean that the church wasn't able to recognize what books has God inspired and what books has God not inspired. What, what are the books that God has given to his people? But it wasn't until the, the fourth century that they were actually able to be collected together and, and, and sewn together in the form of a, of a codex. Well, that was a, that was an extremely expensive process uh, to do. It was, you know, to own a, a book like that, it just, you had to be wealthy, and, and so certain churches maybe had a library where they had a, a bound uh, book of the Bible. And so the, the, the tendency was, when you're going through that process, in, include in there anything else that might be helpful. And so you have uh, the, the oldest um, uh, full book manuscript that we have of Scripture is, is a book, Codex Sinaiticus. And uh, um, it, that's just the name that they give into the manuscript. And it, it includes uh, titles like The Shepherd of Hermas, which is a, a, a book from the, the second century uh, that was never considered to be part of the canon of scripture, but it was, it was, it was included along with this book because it was considered to be something, something helpful. And, and, and that codex also includes the Old Testament Apocrypha. Uh, but, you know, over time, that gets to be associated with, um, with these Old Testament works. And you, you did have uh, certain church fathers who recognized them as inspired. Um, so, Augustine being one of them. Um, Jerome, who was responsible for the translating the, the, the Bible into a new Latin version that became the, the Vulgate, didn't, didn't regard them as, as part of the canon. But you actually don't have them officially declared um, to be in the canon um, by the Roman Catholic Church until the Council of Trent in, in the mid-16th century. In fact, you don't have any definition of what, what, you know, any infallible declaration of these are the books that we recognize as Scripture coming from the Roman Catholic Church until the 16th century. Now, why do I mention that? Because sometimes, and maybe you've heard this before, sometimes... Um, Roman Catholics will, will take issue with Sola Scriptura and say, well, you, you, you can't even know what book should be in the Bible without the church. And how do you know that you should follow Matthew? Or how do you know that you should follow 1 Timothy? Well, the problem is that is it, it takes the authority from God's word itself and it locates it in some outside institution of the church to recognize that. But you, all you've done is just push the question back one step. And so, well, how do you know you're supposed to follow the authority of the church? At some point, it comes to this recognition that God has done something in this to inspire it, and it is self-authenticating. So, why don't we just declare that to be true of God's word itself and not locate that in, in the church? But it, just taking that on its own grounds, then you wouldn't have had, up until the Council of Trent, did nobody know what books were supposed to be in the Bible? Because the church hadn't infallibly declared that 
to be the case. Um, so that was that was a time when this was a, a kind of settled and defined issue. Uh, but we know, you know, we know uh, just looking at history, which of, of of the Old Testament books were included in in the Hebrew scriptures in in the um, in the Jewish canon, and and it's the the thirty nine uh, Old Testament books that are in the the Protestant Bible, and and actually Jesus himself. Uh, affirms this. If you remember a statement that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 23, you know, he is denouncing uh, the, the Pharisees and the scribes as those who have um, characteristically opposed the work of God and have persecuted the prophets. And, and so their opposition to him, it, it just fits with what they have always done. And, uh, and, and he says this in, in Matthew 23, verse 35, So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I said to you all these things will come upon this generation. Or why does Jesus mention those two guys? Well, in the way that the, the, the Jewish canon was arranged, and it was our 39 books, now you, like First and Second Kings were just one book, and First and Second Chronicles were one book. It, the, 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 the book that we call Second Chronicles was at the very end of the canon, so it went from Genesis to Second Chronicles. And the first martyr, the first murder that shows up in, in that canon would be in Genesis, which would be Abel. And the last guy to be martyred comes in Second Chronicles, which is Zechariah the son of Berechiah. Now, Jesus could have picked many other examples during the Maccabean revolt of righteous people that were killed and opposed, but, but he picks this one. It shows he, these are the bookends for Jesus' functional Bible in that day. And so he's, he's recognizing the authority of the Jewish canon, which is our Old Testament and our, our Bibles today. It's a good question. What else? Anton? Yeah, I'm not familiar too much with uh, at what point that transition is taking place. You know, you have a lot of the religious conditions in in Europe are are shifting over time, and then in the in the 20th century, you know, post post Enlightenment becoming increasingly secular. So sadly, a lot of the places that the Reformation came to, they're largely secular societies, and so Switzerland is is secular and Catholic, and and you have these other traditions there. But uh, I, I couldn't I couldn't answer that. Uh, otherwise, unless somebody else in here can. All right. Yes? Uh, would you give us a little bit of a rundown on English translation from the Bible? Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, we, we talked about um, uh, about um, not, um, the names escaping me right now. Not uh, William Tyndale, but John Wycliffe. Okay, there it comes. Uh, John Wycliffe, you know, he was uh, the, the first man who was responsible of producing scripture in English. He translated much of the of the New Testament, and his followers, the Lollards, continued that work. Uh, but they were translating from the Latin Vulgate into 
English, and were a, a significantly persecuted movement. Uh, and I mentioned just the, this sobering reality that th- there was a family that was burned at the stake because they possessed a copy of the Lord's Prayer in English. And so, possessing God's Word in your own language, unless it was some officially approved uh, translation, uh, was a capital offense. Um, we have, you know, William Tyndale comes to adopt the principles of the Reformation, first through theology of Luther, and then also more uh, becoming more Reformed following uh, Calvin. And, and he, there was a, 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 Tyndale's biographer, Daniel, David Danielle, says that Tyndale was always singing one note, which is, will the king of England approve a translation of God's word in the English language for for the people, because again, that had to be officially recognized and approved, even after um, you know Henry VIII uh, turns Protestant and, and recognizes the the, um, the the presence of the Protestant religion there. But you, you had you had this shift happening with Henry VIII and uh, Mary to follow, and then Elizabeth, and so England kind of waffles between uh, quasi-Protestant and Roman Catholic until it then settles into uh, being a a largely Protestant nation for the monarchs uh, to follow. Uh, But Tyndale was first to translate from Hebrew uh, and Greek into English. He did the entire New Testament. He did a majority of the Old Testament as well. And uh, this is the the ongoing influence of Tyndale's work. Uh, 90% of the King James translation uh, goes back to Tyndale's work. And and, and if you're reading from the ESV or the NIV or some of these other uh, translations, you still get about 65-70% are Tyndale's choice of words that are getting carried over into English. And, And just many of them haven't been improved upon. I mean, you have Jesus wept. Nobody's Nobody's improved upon rendering that in English, much less one translation that said, Jesus cried hard. You just don't get quite the same effect. Um, so he just, he, he understood the original languages um, faithfully, and then he knew how to put them in beautiful English um, expressions. Um, so Tyndale's work becomes the, the basis of um, some other works. The Geneva Bible is, a, is an early, uh, earlier English translation to follow uh, Tyndale. Um, it's, it's named after the, the theology of Geneva, and it, and it came with kind of footnotes that explain, it was, it was one of the first study Bibles that has study notes explaining uh, reform thinking and theology from the text of, of God's word. Um, you had the great Bible was used in many of the churches in, in England, um, but, but uh, eventually in 1611, uh, James I approves a, a new translation to, to, to be done, and um, that was the first edition of the King James Version was in 1611. But again, they're not starting from scratch. They're, they're pulling in previous work that's been done. They're, they're looking at the text again and trying to consider, uh, you know, what are some uh, helpful ways to, to, to render this in English. And then, the, and then the King James Version undergoes several editions and, and, and revisions um, in, the, in the history that follows. Why does the King James still have such a following? Or what's, what's... 
Well, uh, you know, in, in, in England at the time, it became this, this official authorized, you know, the king is putting his stamp of approval on it uh, and, and saying, and, and, you know, again, the king is the head of the Anglican church. Uh, Henry declared himself to be in the act of, of supremacy, and so uh, the, the polity in Anglicanism sees the, uh, the monarch as the, as the head of, of the church. Um, and so that became the, the official... Um, translation in these English communities, um, and so that had widespread influence. And then you just didn't have another work of translation to to have that same effect that followed in, in, the, in the century. So it's used, you know, up and you know you have other translation work being done, but then in the in the 20th century you have the uh, revised standard version and some others that are coming up that that begin to have have influence. But they're still in that same stream of English translation work that has the King James in it and ultimately goes back to, to William Tyndale. Yes. Yeah. Just tying Burris' question together, his, in, in the 1880s, it seems like all the English Bibles until the 1880s, 1800s, included the Apocrypha. Yes. So the question is, uh, you know, the, the earlier translations included the Apocrypha in, in, in the, the original version of the King James in 1611, and then you, you have that in, in the 18th century uh, editions of the King James includes the Apocrypha as well, and then eventually it's, it's no longer included. Right. Yep. Yeah, I, I think that, that just stems from there being... The, the the history and the tradition of what that means that having that bound in the same book it, it's like it's like if you get a, a version of the English standard version study bible today the ESV study bible that comes with articles and notes and other material that is not inspired but it's in, it's printed in the same book and so they kind of viewed the apocrypha as background material historical material that's going to help somebody to be able to read and and understand uh the the other books but but eventually you know as book production you know you had the the printing press in the 1500s and that becomes much more common and, and possessing books uh um, it, it's it's not as rare to be able to possess copies of these things, and and so I, I'm assuming the trend became, um, you know, let's just include bound in one volume the canonical books. No, no, I don't think there there was anything like that. The, so the. The fourth century is when you have the invention of the of the codex, the three hundreds, and then and again that's still all done by hand. And then you have in the fifteen hundreds the invention of the printing press, right at the time of the Reformation, where this material can get disseminated and available. Uh, A.D. A.D. Yeah, the uh, you had prior to that you have many. Um, and, and, and at least, let me, let me correct myself. That's when you have, stemming back to the 4th century is when, is the oldest codex form uh, manuscript that we have of, of the Bible. There may have been other uh, books that were formed, you know, a little, a little bit previous to that. Um, but that, 
everything that we have before that time period, period is in the, in the form of papyri. question is, how, how do we take this and interact with Roman Catholic friends and family over the holidays? Uh, I, I recommend beginning Thanksgiving by nailing a copy of the 95 Theses to the front door. And just be clear for anybody entering in, this is what we're going to stand for. Um, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of what we've discussed even, even today in this Q&A time, you know, only a fraction of that is ever going to enter a conversation. Um, so this is to benefit your understanding, and then it's to kind of build a library of knowledge that sometimes questions go in these areas, and you're able to graciously provide a response, and it's like you go to the library, and you pull that book off the shelf, and you open up to chapter three, and you're able to share, okay, well, here's how we would see uh, how we have the books of the Bible, but it doesn't mean that that's what you're leading with, and you're just downloading, you know, your, your protest of all this information upon them. So, you know, I think you guys are, are well trained in the um, alpha setting and in and, and table leading that you do, and, and I just would recommend um, taking those same sorts of principles into those settings of of asking questions and creating conversation, and just inviting people to consider things. And and what does that mean to you? You know, there's just there's so much that people will throw out a phrase or an idea, and it only extends as far as that sentence. And it's like they, they know those words and they know how to arrange them in that order, but they don't really know what they mean by that. And so sometimes just pressing on that a little bit. So what do you, what do you understand that to be? What do you mean? And just, and just creating conversation that, that, that sounds like you're asking questions. It sounds like you're sharing from um, your own experience of what has God done in your life? How has he awakened you to the beauty of, of his truth? And then, and, then, and then things like justification by faith. I mean, these are just tremendously freeing doctrines. And so you're ultimately just inviting people into the freedom of, um, you can know that God really is for you, that you're 100% accepted by him through what Jesus has done, received by faith. And, and hopefully you know, uh, you, you know some places in the Bible to go, there, if you're if you're wanting to talk with somebody about that, um, you also know the ideas that that bumps up against, and and maybe more fully than they know. Maybe you you know they they hear you say that and they they feel like well that's what I believe that's what I and and and, and so you, you know it's not like you you print out a copy of the Council of Trent and say no it's not and and uh, and and show them how that that disagrees but you know kind of the areas and traditions to explore around to just say well how do you see that in relation to what happens when you when you go to mass or when you 
go to confession? What, what's that doing for you when it comes to why God accepts you? You know, and you're just, you're just exploring around in those areas. Uh, sometimes you will, and, 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 and I want you to be prepared for this experience as well. You know, many of you, you've come from Roman Catholic traditions, maybe through settings like this, you've learned more about that than you did when you were growing up in it. Um, and, then, and then others are interacting with um, family members and friends that kind of have vague ideas and their upbringing and traditions that are mixed together. But there might come a day where you're sitting next to somebody on, on a plane or you're, you, you've got a coworker that they're armed with arguments, and they're coming with, you know, what do you have to say about James 2? Or how can you know that uh, Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew unless you have the church? Or, you know, so I don't want that to be a disillusioning experience for you as well. Because there are some, some really bright and well-studied uh, Roman Catholics out there that are prepared to eat you for lunch <laughs> if you're not ready. And, and, and so um, don't assume that, you know, you just quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and, and they're not going to have a response to that because they're already three steps ahead of that. And, and again, it's not that it's about the arguments, but uh, reasoning on these things is something that God uses. We see this in his word and we see this throughout history to, to, to bring people to a place of clarity and of truth. That's a good question, Lester. Thank you, man. Lord, thank you for your truth. Thank you for its clarity and its freedom. Thank you for its saving power in our lives. Would we be faithful to you and faithful witnesses of you in whatever setting you call us to. And we always speak the truth in love and with humility. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.